The following message is distributed by the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, this is your church. This is your people. This is your truth. This is your moment to do as you will. And we ask, will you use it for our good in Christ, please? Will you work among us and do all the necessary things that I can't do on my own? Simply put, would you please be with us in the next few moments, please? It's in Christ's name that we ask it. Amen. Good morning. I hope that everyone had a good Christmas this past week. Uh, If it's your first time here, my name is Josh Hicks. I'm a pastoral intern here at the church. Um, Pastor Steve, our senior pastor, is out of town, uh, and so I have the privilege of opening God's Word with you this morning. As a church, we're currently working through the book of 2 Timothy. It's our practice here to work section by section through entire books of the Bible at a time. Uh, So I'm sure that when he returns here in just a couple weeks, he will continue with that study. Uh, Our passage this morning, though, is coming from the fourth chapter of the book of James. So if you would go ahead and open your Bibles, please, turn to that chapter. We're going to be reading verses 13 through 16. This passage, I think, has some helpful insights that are both challenging and comforting when looked at from a certain angle. And they're particularly relevant to the situation we find ourselves in this morning as we, I don't know what word you would use, recover perhaps from the uh, highs and or lows of Christmas and turn our attention now to the potentials of a new year and what that could mean for us. So let's read our passage together. James chapter 4, verses 13 through 16. Come now you who say... Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So I have two points from the text this morning. The first is quite a bit longer than the second. So if we cross the halfway mark and I'm still on the first point, have no fear, it'll be okay, there's a plan. The first point is this. Arrogant hearts produce arrogant plans. That's a whole lot worse than it sounds, trust me. Arrogant hearts produce arrogant plans, and that's a whole lot worse than it sounds. Trust me. Verse 16 gives us the situation as it stands concerning certain individuals within the church that James is writing to. He says, as it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. To boast in something is simply to take glory in something, to take pride in something. It's to find some kind of heightened level of joy or pleasure in something. And we all boast. We're all familiar with this because we we all do it. Whether it's 
boasting in our kids or in our favorite sports teams or in some great feat or accomplishment that inspires us. We all boast. And that's okay because boasting in and of itself is not wrong. It's not necessarily wrong. In fact, there's plenty of examples in the Bible of good, godly boasting, you might say. What determines whether or not a particular boast is wrong or right is the worthiness of the object that you're boasting in primarily. In the boasting in our passage, James says that they are boasting, uh, that it's an evil boasting because the object that they're boasting in is their arrogance. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. So the situation as it stands is that these individuals are wrongly glorying in and taking pride in a particular type of arrogance. And this is evil, says James. Now, verses 13 and 15 primarily describe the nature of this arrogance. So let's look at verse 13. Come now, you who say, you who say. When James says this, he's not so much addressing actual speech here as much as he's wanting to draw their attention and our attention to an underlying attitude of sorts. It's very much like he would be saying, come now you who say in your hearts, or come now you who actually think and feel and therefore live in this particular way. So come now you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Now, it's been pointed out by many others that this statement is meant to represent a collage of presumptuousness on the part of these individuals. And it's very easy to see once you know that. If you break it up into its various parts, you see that they presume to dictate when things will occur in their lives and how they will occur. They presume to have the ability to go where they want, when they want to. And when they get there, they presume not only to have the power to perform whatever activity that they want, but they presume to be able to perform it as long as they want and to be in control of the outcome. They say, today or tomorrow, we will go, we will, and we will go into a specific town of our choosing. And we will stay there for exactly a year. And while we're there, we will conduct the business of our choice. And it will render a profit exactly as we've planned, exactly as we've chosen. They think and feel and therefore operate and even speak as though they are masters of their own fate. And they glory in this. They believe themselves to be in charge of their own destiny and they like it that way. They're proud of it. They boast in this arrogance. They are the ones who make the decisive decisions for their lives, not God. So they think. And we know that we're on the right track here about what they're thinking and feeling because then in verse 15, James offers them the course correction, as it were. He says, instead, you ought to say, that is, instead of saying that, you ought to be saying this, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. So James is saying, in essence, to these individuals, you think and feel and live in a way that screams, we're in control and we're steering this ship of our lives. 
But as professing Christians, says James, you ought to be thinking and feeling and living in a way that testifies to the reality that God is in control. And only if he wills will these things take place in your life or not. Now, these individuals might be an extreme case, and therefore, they might be an extreme example for us, but it is easier than you think to fall into this error. It's very easy to live our lives and to plan for our future in such a way that we are operating more or less as though we are little gods who actually think we're in control of our lives. It's so natural, in fact, that we often do it without even thinking about it, without even knowing that we're doing it. And living in America doesn't help with this. For most, not all, certainly, but I think it's safe to say for most Americans, we have enough securities to function as though we don't need God. We have food and shelter and electricity, and automobiles, and plumbing, and refrigerators, and heat and air, and hospitals, and insurance, and government assistance, and public transportation, and jobs, and colleges, and banks, and loans, and charities, and advanced technology. We have police, firefighters, military, and the list goes on and on of all of the great benefits that we have. So much so that even for those of us who might be considered less fortunate Americans, there is still a host of opportunities before us generally at different parts throughout our lives. So that in large measure, we can all plan out our lives the way that we want. We can make goals and pursue them and actually attain them, assuming they're realistic goals, and we can be successful in our lives. And we can do all of that seemingly without any need of assistance from God. And that should be a terrifying thought. A teacher years ago said this, and I never forgot it. He said, one of the worst things that could happen to you as a Christian is that you could live your life outside of God's will for your life and be successful doing it. In the name of God. You can live your life outside of his will for your life and be successful and do it in the name of God. That should be a terrifying thought because that means that you'll be blind to the fact that you're not actually in God's will. You'll be blind to the fact that you're filled with some kind of sweeping arrogance that assumes that you're in control of your life. And that success that you think is a blessing might actually be a curse. I think that's something of what's going on in the passage with these individuals. And I think James is graciously trying to give them a wake-up call. And I think we should listen in. Are you actively cultivating in your life what you might call a Proverbs 3 mentality? Or a Proverbs 3 perception of reality that prompts your heart and your mind to trust in the Lord. To not lean on your own understanding. And to acknowledge him in all of your ways. Or... Do you, in large measure, intentionally or unintentionally, conduct your life trusting in yourself? 
completely leaning on your own understanding about things that are happening in your life and only acknowledging God after the fact. Maybe with a prayer of thanks when your will has been achieved and then call that living according to his will for your life. Do you seek to live every day prayerfully conscious of the God of your life, not only desiring that his will would be done in your life, but seeking his guidance in all that you do and in all that you plan, from the seemingly momentous decisions and events in your life to the seemingly trivial? Because this is true with me, maybe it is with you, many times... I only prayerfully seek God's will in my life when I deem it to be a larger or more important decision. And I wrongly assume that the trivial is actually trivial. But it's not. There is absolutely nothing in your life that doesn't have purpose and meaning and significance in the will of God. Nothing no matter how small you might think that it is. In fact, it's the seemingly trivial things that are used by God often to most impact our lives. Maybe you've heard the, the old proverb of the, uh, the horseshoe nail. It's a few centuries old, so there's various renditions of it, uh, but I think it captures the sentiment of this pretty nicely. So one rendition of it is this. For want of a nail, the horseshoe was lost. For want of a horseshoe, the horse was lost. For want of a horse, the messenger was lost. For want of the message, the battle was lost. For want of the battle, the war was lost. And for want of the war, the kingdom was lost. And all for the want of a little horseshoe nail. As Christians, we must recognize God's will over every area of our lives, even the seemingly unimportant parts. They're more important than you think. Now, coming back to our passage, if we're going to avoid falling into the same error, the same arrogance as these individuals, it's helpful to ask the question, what's going on behind this? How did they get here? What's driving this wild arrogance that James is describing here? And my answer to this, borrowing from 1 John, is that it is a love for the world and the things in the world. A love for the world and the things in the world. In other words, my opinion is, is that it's not merely that these individuals are arrogant and that they presume to have the power to control their lives, but that this arrogance is fueled by a passion to acquire wealth and position or reputation or power or pleasure or leisure or comfort or whatever else you can put under the heading of the things of this world. And I think a quick glance of the immediate context in our passage demonstrates this. The first half of the fourth chapter of James, where our text is taken from, James is coming against what he sees as, using some of his terminology here, what he sees as a covetous desire to obtain worldly things and a spending of those things on personal passions. 
And then he warns of an adulterous friendship with the world that creates enmity with God. And it's from that thinking, dealing with that kind of issue in the church, that he then moves to pen our verses. So that's the context that he's thinking in. And then what flows out from our verse into the beginning of chapter 5, there's no chapter divisions in the Bible. We, we put those there. But what's labeled the beginning of chapter 5 is a statement from James of impending judgment, very much like an Old Testament prophet. And the judgment's being made upon certain unrighteous wealthy people, not just wealthy people, but unrighteous wealthy people, who have, quote, lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. That's in verse 5. In fact, 5.1 begins with the same come now address as our passage does in verse 13 of chapter 4. And these are the only two places where James uses this specific address. And it's in back-to-back paragraphs. Which could mean that he's either addressing the same individuals in both paragraphs, or that he is addressing a related problem that's happening with both groups of people. So, in my opinion, this is not just about the presumptuousness of thinking that you can pursue your own ends without regard to God's will. It's also about what James calls a double-mindedness. A passion for the things of this life which then fuels this kind of presumptuous living. So, when we seek to apply this to ourselves, we have to apply it in both ways. We have to also ask ourselves what passions are fueling our thinking and our planning, our living. Now, since we're right here at the new year, maybe it is appropriate to frame the application in this way. If you were to right now write out a list of all of the things that you most strongly desire to accomplish or to gain this year, what would the list look like? And don't cheat and put some kind of Sunday morning religious veneer over this. Be honest with yourself. Right? What, what would you put if you had to write down right now what you most want to accomplish or gain this year? Because you know exactly where I'm going, probably. It's the stereotypical thing to ask in a sermon right before New Year's, and I do it with zero shame. So here we go. Is Christ on your list? And if so, where does he rank on the list? That is, is a greater love for and service towards and faith in Christ on your list? And where does it rank? Is a better prayer life or devotional life or church life or evangelistic life Is any of that on your list? Is an increase in personal holiness and Christ-likeness on your list? Or is what dominates your list possibly something that would look similar to what James would call selfish ambitions? Or worldly pursuits? Or earthly passions? Does your list reveal a similar double-mindedness is the, individual that, the individuals that James is correcting in this passage. Maybe not exactly the same, but similar perhaps. 
Now, to be fair, we're talking with a friend about this subject. He brought this up, and I think he's right, that when we're asking these kinds of questions, there is a massive gray area here. What I mean is we have families that we need to provide for, many of us. We have kids that might need our help to go to college. We have loved ones that we want to live a long life with. We have hopes for experiencing the good earthly things that God has actually made for our enjoyment in this life. And so, of course, to accomplish this, we might need to be thinking about pursuing certain levels of financial success. We might need to be thinking about perhaps advancement in our profession. We might need to be thinking about physical health. So it's not necessarily wrong in the right context with the right motives. But while we want to fairly recognize that there's a large gray area here, we also want to fairly observe that there's still a line that we don't want to cross in these matters, is there not? We can still go too far in our earthly pursuits, can we not? So while, yes, the line can be difficult to see sometimes, and while, yes, the placement of the line may vary from person to person, and while, yes, the line in our own lives might move with changing circumstances, the question we should all be considering still stands nonetheless. Are you even looking for that line in your life? so as not to cross it? Are you wrestling with God about this at all here in America? Is the existence of the line even on your radar? Or are you perhaps coasting, assuming everything's okay? Or worse, possibly using the ambiguity of this area, this gray area, as justification for what you know deep down to be some kind of unfitting excess in your life. We have to pay attention to our loves and our desires. We have to pay attention to what it is that we long for. For these individuals in our passage, it would seem that their passions went unchecked. And so those passions grew and grew and culminated into a damning arrogance and a God-ignoring pursuit of the things that they so coveted. It didn't happen in a vacuum. It didn't happen suddenly overnight for them. It happened over time through neglect. And it can happen to any one of us as well. Any one of us if we're not mindful of it. So pay attention to your passions, and when you find one that's suspect, interrogate it. Ask questions about it. Be like the psalmist and ask questions of your soul. Questions like, what do you think this thing that you're longing for and chasing after, what do you think it's really going to bring you in the end? Really. Or what's the void in your soul that you're experiencing that you actually believe this thing is going to fill? And why do you even think that it can fill it? And what's tricked you, perhaps, into believing that God is somehow comparatively less sufficient to be able to fill that same void? 
I'm convinced that when we live our lives according to our fallen wills and passions, without God in Christ is the aim of our lives, we will only ever be left wanting year after year. And that's why there's always a new list. That's why we're always adding to it year after year, because it never satisfies. Maybe you know this quote, C.S. Lewis. He has a lot of famous ones. This one's among the, the top. He said, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. I think it's true. And maybe you won't fault me with damaging the quote too much if I change it to, if we find in ourselves a will which when pursued only leaves us unsatisfied, Perhaps the explanation is that we were meant to live for another will. I think that's true too, which brings us to the second point. You're a mist in the Lord's will. And that's a whole lot better than it sounds, trust me. You're a mist in the Lord's will, and that's a whole lot better than it sounds, trust me. Verse 14 James seeks to demonstrate the insanity of these individuals' arrogance, the insanity of chasing the deceits of worldly pleasure to the point of living their lives as though they were actually in control of them. And he does this with two rebukes. Both of them are in verse 14. It says, Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. That is, you are not the little gods you have presumed yourselves to be, says James to these individuals. You're limited creatures, severely limited, in fact, in both knowledge and in power. You're limited in knowledge in the fact that you claim to know what's going to happen later today or tomorrow, and you don't. You don't. And you're limited in power because you're just a mist. Or more accurately, you're just a vapor. Or a puff of smoke is how this word's used in other places in the New Testament. It's the helpful example of it. It's, it's the image of when you light a match, you know, the old strike matches, and you see that little puff of smoke that comes off of it and just disappears real quick. That's what he's talking about, that little vapor, little puff. That's what you are, says James. Now, it's easy to abuse an analogy in the Bible. It happens all the time. And I don't want to be guilty of it here, but combining this analogy of life is a vapor with what we've already seen in our passage, I think we can safely extract a few applications that James would want us to extract. So I have four of them listed here. Number one, we are, by nature, temporal creatures. Like a vapor, we have a very brief existence on this planet. One minute we're here, and the next minute we're not. Or as James words it, we appear for a little time and then vanish. Number two, our lives are by nature insubstantial and therefore fragile. Like the thinness and vulnerability of a mist that can be swept away by the slightest breath, 
We are vulnerable creatures. It doesn't take much to knock us about or to take us out completely. Number three, in our time here on earth, our lives are, relatively speaking, insignificant. A vapor comes and goes and, in general, doesn't affect much on its way, and the world keeps on spinning, which is true of the vast majority of humans that have ever lived throughout history, and it is true of the vast majority of humans that ever will live. You think the book of Ecclesiastes for that. And lastly, number four, as James has already explicitly pointed out in our passage, our lives are contingent. Vapors don't just magically appear or will themselves into existence or will themselves a longer existence than what they were made to have. And neither do we. If the Lord wills, we will live, says James. Our lives are contingent upon the will of the one who made us. Now, none of this is unique to the individuals that James is writing to. This is a description of the human condition. And so every bit of this applies to all of us. All of us. Our lives are by nature fleeting, fragile, relatively insignificant, and utterly contingent upon the will of our Creator. And when you put all of this together, I think that what James is trying to get across with all of this is that we are completely incapable of controlling our lives. In fact, we're wholly insufficient for the task by our very nature. Now, here's what I find interesting about this, is that these two realities, our limitedness in knowledge and our limitedness in power, these two realities, James is using these to dissuade us from attempting to control our lives. He's using them to move us towards a humble dependence upon God's will. And yet, these are the very two realities that often move us in the exact opposite direction of that. Think about it. We don't know what tomorrow is going to bring, and that terrifies us. And so we try to take control from God and steer our lives in the direction that we find most assuring. Life is indeed short and fleeting, and that terrifies us. And so we seek to take control and to do the things we most want to do before it's too late and this life is over. Life is fragile, and this terrifies us not only for ourselves, but for the people that we love. And so in fear, we seek to take control and set up all the safety measures we can to best ensure our well-being and the well-being of people we care about. Life is, relatively speaking, insignificant, and this terrifies us. We can't bear the thought of living a life of perceived meaninglessness and uselessness. And so we seek to take control in search of some kind of significance in life. The very realities that James uses to dissuade us of the vain attempt to control our lives are also the very realities that our sinful hearts use against us to move us towards doing that very thing. Towards taking control. Our limitedness as creatures should move us closer to God in faith, independence, but instead it's used by sin to move us away from God in fear and arrogance. 
So James uses these two realities as a rebuke, and rightly so in his context. Our sin uses them to produce arrogance through fear. Wrongly so. So I figure, why don't I get in on this action and use them as a source of comfort? Turn them for this morning, perhaps as a means of grace for us. Now, I'm not drifting here as I begin, so I'm going to work my way back. Everything in our passage is working around and connected to the will of the Lord. It's all circling the phrase in verse 15, if the Lord wills. And the will that's being addressed is what's often referred to by theologians as God's will of decree. It's that will of God for all creation that cannot be altered or changed. It can't be thwarted. It can't be reversed. It's that will of God that's frequently mentioned in the Bible in passages like Isaiah 46. I am God and there is no other, declaring the end from the beginning, saying my counsel shall stand and I will do all of my pleasure. It is a fixed will for all things purposed before the world was even made. And if I were forced to give a summary answer for what that eternal will of God is, I would probably, especially since I've had time to think about it, I would probably mash together a couple verses and say something like, the eternal will of God is that all things be from Christ, through Christ, and to Christ. That is that everything in existence was made by God through Christ and that everything continues to exist by Christ and that everything will find its ultimate purpose and fulfillment in Christ. That before the foundation of the world, it was determined that Christ would be the beginning, the middle, and the end of all things. That everything in history was looking forward to his incarnation, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. And that everything moving forward for all time would forever be changed by those events. Such that ultimately everything in heaven and on earth would be brought together and made new under the reign of this exalted Christ and all of this to the glory of God the Father. I'd say something like that. That's good news for us. That's very good news for us. Because a part of God's will for our lives is that we would be an integral part of his purposes in Christ. In that irreversible will. Yes, we temporarily live as mists. Mists who don't know the details of what tomorrow will bring. And this makes us fearful because we're exposed to hardships and trials and pain and suffering and loss and death. We're exposed to deceptive desires and longings that would in fact kill our souls. And it pushes us towards a dangerous arrogance and an attempt to take control of our lives. But... Our suffering through this experience as mists 
because of the will of God in Christ, it's working something amazing for us. As we humble ourselves in faith, and in faith depend upon God's loving will for our lives, we can say with Paul that these momentary afflictions are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. All comparison. By the will of God in Christ for your life, there is coming a glory that is big enough and deep enough and wide enough that hoping in it can completely redirect every ambition, every pursuit, every goal, every dream of your life. It's glorious enough to supplant every worldly desire, every passion, and every love. It's trustworthy enough to displace every fear and every anxiety. It's full enough to fill every longing and every void that you might be feeling in your soul. It's rewarding enough to outweigh any and every loss or pain that could ever be experienced in this life. You are a mist in the will of God, yes. But this mist-like existence is working glory for you. Everything will be changed for your good in due time. In due time. Your earthly fragility is to be replaced with incorruptibility. Your short, fleeting earthly life will be replaced with an eternity with God. Your seeming insignificance will be replaced with royalty as God's own children seated with Christ himself above every name that is named. And your life being contingent, that's not going to change. But the point is, is that you won't want it to anymore. Because you'll see reality for what it is. You'll see your life for what it is, and you'll know that it's perfect, that God's will for you is good, and it's perfect. So let's summarize briefly what we've said so far. Point one, arrogant hearts produce arrogant plans, and that's a whole lot worse than it sounds, trust me. The emphases were, Two, in humble dependence, acknowledge God's will and everything in your life, large and small. And to guard the passions of your heart. Second point was you're a mist in the Lord's will. That's a whole lot better than it sounds, trust me. And the emphases were to, to take comfort in and to find rest in the fact that part of God's eternal purposes in Christ is your eternal good. And to let that heavenly hope calm your fears and replace your passions. So maybe just one closing statement. If you, by God's grace, will make these your ambitions, not just in the new year, but in years to come, if you do that, it will go well for you in the ways that matter most, in the ways that matter most. And don't trust me on that one. Trust God. Trust his will for your life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being 
everything that you are for us in Christ. Thank you that your will for us is something that we can find hope in, something that we can find rest in, something that we can find strength in to endure in this life and to endure in a way that that glorifies you. Thank you for this. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message recorded at the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcevfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.